Numbers chapter 22, verse 22 says, Anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from uh, from before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. So here's a statement that you probably wouldn't expect a pastor to make on a Sunday morning. Christians can sometimes be the hardest people to deal with. Christians can be the hardest people to deal with sometimes. I've played in a Christian softball league. The the church has played in a Christian softball league uh, up until this year. And uh, for years, you know, we'll have these teams, you know, we'll start and pray before the game. And then every year there's certain teams and certain individuals where uh, it just gets nasty where there's disagreements about calls, disagreements about the rules, and every year, it's like there's some kind of controversy. It's not only in softball, uh, but, you know, it kind of has manifested itself the most. That's the most experience I have in it. But uh, I kid you not, years ago, I was in a Christian softball league, and uh, I encountered a pastor, wasn't me, a pastor who uh, was about to, to get into a fist fight with a teenager over things that happened in a softball game. Uh, it also happens in, in hockey as well. I've played in Christian hockey leagues and Christian, um, non-Christian hockey leagues. And some of the most nasty, dirty, contentious play has happened in the Christian hockey leagues. Now, as a pastor, this has been kind of a struggle for me. I'm like, why is this the case? And, and of course, you know, I'm overgeneralizing. It's not always the case. There's, there's times where there's good fellowship and people act like Christ. But why, a lot of times, you get into these contexts, these Christian contexts, and sometimes, you know, people act worse than people in a non-Christian league. This has been troubling to me, and I've been thinking about, why is this? We know it shouldn't be that way, but what causes this to happen? 
Well, I didn't have a very good answer, and then I started working on this message, and I feel like God gave me, if not the answer, at least an answer why this is sometimes the case. When we think about Christianity, I think that people come to Christ or come to Christianity for two different reasons. On the one hand, some people come to Christ because they realize their need before God. They realize that we're all, uh, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, that we're all sinners, we're all broken, and they come to Christ to drink from the living water and to find hope and healing. That's why we should come to Christ, because we're in need of Him. We're broken. But there's others who come to Christ not so that they could you know, have their needs fulfilled, so that Christ would heal them, but so that they might look better in others' eyes. As a way to kind of boost up their pride. These people don't see themselves as sinners in need of grace. They see themselves as fundamentally good people. And so, I'm a Christian. I'm a good person. And they see themselves as knowing more than other people. I know the truth. Other people don't know the truth. So they consider them good. They consider themselves good morally because in their minds they do things better than other people. They do Christian things. And they consider themselves better intellectually than other people because, oh, I know more than those in the outside world. Now, how can this be? How can something that is supposed to be humbling, you know, we come to Christ, we come to the cross, and it's supposed to be humbling. It's supposed to lead us to Christ. But how can this be used as a means to boost up our pride? An article from the New York Times kind of illustrates how this can sometimes happen. The article observes humility is not what it used to be. As a matter of fact, it may be the opposite of what it used to mean. Lately, it's pro forma, possibly even mandatory for politicians, athletes, celebrities, and other public figures to be vocally and vigorously humbled by every honor awarded, prize won, job offered, record broken, pound lost, shout out received. Like, copped, thumbed, upped. Diving at random into the internet and social media finds this new humility everywhere. A soap opera actress on tour is humbled by the outpouring of love from fans. Comedians are humbled by big laughs. Yoga practitioners are humbled by achieving different, difficult poses. Athletes are humbled by good days on the field. Christmas volunteers are humbled by their own generosity and holiday spirit. And yet none of these people sound very humbled at all. On the contrary, they all seem exceedingly proud of themselves, hashtagging their humility to advertise their own status, success, uh, generosity, moral superiority, and luck. When did humility get so cocky and vainglorious? I think in a similar way, similar way sometimes people use Christianity, which is meant to show our need for Christ, and they use it as a means to boost up our own self-esteem, to boost up our own pride. And this isn't something that just happens today. It's been happening since the beginning of Christianity. Remember back in the early church, what did the Judaizers say? They said uh, that we're better than these other people who don't follow the law. We have circumcision. We have the law. We are better than the Gentiles. You know, you had factionalism in the early church where some people would say, well, uh, my religion is better than yours because I follow Paul. Paul's teaching is better than another person's teaching. Or I follow Apollos, or I, I follow directly Christ. And so they were you know, into these factions where it's like, my religion is better than your religion. And they're using their religion as a means to boost up their own self-esteem rather than to lead them to Christ. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 3 to 4. 
He says, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? And I think this is one of the reasons, of course not all, but one of the reasons that many people do not like Christians. A.W. Tozer puts the problem this way. He says, it might be a shock to some of us if we could know why we are disliked and why our testimony was rejected so violently. Could it be that we're guilty of deep simple sinfulness of disposition that we just cannot keep hidden? Arrogance, lack of charity, contempt, self-righteousness, religious snobbery, fault-finding, and all this kept under careful restraint and disguised by a pious smile and synthetic good humor. This sort of thing is felt rather than understood by those who touch us in everyday life. They do not know why they cannot stand us, but we are sure that the reason is our exalted state of spirituality. He says, perilous comfort, deep heart-searching, and prolonged repentance would be better. And I think this passage that we're looking at today addresses this issue. In the passage that we're looking at today, the people of Israel have moved beyond, remember that snake episode where they were grumbling against the Lord that we talked about last week, and then God brought these snakes among them as a judgment, and then Moses constructed this pole, put the snake on the pole. Anyone who looked at the snake would be healed if they were bitten by the snake. So they've moved on from that. They're following after God's plans, at least somewhat, and God has given them victories. They've been victorious over the king of Bashan, over the Amorites, and now they're on the plains of Moab, and the king of Moab sees that Israel is coming, and he starts to get a little bit nervous because Israel has just defeated these other armies. And so he doesn't think he can defeat the Israelites in his own strength, so he decides he's going to consult this spiritualist, in the scriptures it calls it a diviner, similar to what we might think of as kind of a witch or somebody like that. Someone who had spiritual insights, who uh, had some kind of spiritual power, or he was not a Jew, he was not, uh, from all we can tell, he was not really a follower of God. He just kind of used kind of the spiritual arts to kind of uh, wield power in the world, and he was apparently very good at it. He was well-respected, and when people thought about someone who was powerful, they thought about Balaam. And so the king of uh, of uh, the Moabites, Balak, decides he's going to call on Balaam, uh, this diviner, to help him to curse the Israelites. We can see Balak's estimation of uh, Balaam when he says this. He says, I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. And so Balak calls Balaam, the diviner, to curse the Israelites so that the Moabites wouldn't be defeated by the Israelites. And so he sends his princes to Balaam, and Balaam kind of has the sense initially to say, I can't do what God doesn't tell me to do. I can't curse these people if God doesn't allow me to curse them. And so he consults God, and God says, don't go with them. Don't have anything to do with this. And so then the princes go back to Balak, and Balak kind of ups the ante. He sends more princes, and he promises Balaam, all right, if you come... I'm going to make you wealthy. Basically, anything you want, you, you'll have it if you come and curse the Israelites. So then Balaam talks to God again. God appears to him. He says this time, all right, you can go, but only do what I tell you to do. You can go, only do what I tell you to do. Then we see that he goes with these princes, headed back to, 
to Balak. And something kind of shocking happens. At least it, 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 it's shocking in the way it's written in the text. It says in verse 22, But God's anger was kindled because he went. So wait a second. So God told him, okay, it's okay to go, but then he's angry that he went. So how do we make sense of this? This word for because in the Hebrew can also mean as he went. So uh, when he's going, it's not because he went, and later in the text he's actually going to tell him, all right, keep going. It's as he went. So why was God angry at uh, Balaam as he went? I think that the scriptures give us a hint. In Second Peter, Peter talks about Balaam and the sin that he fell into, and he describes it this way. It says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain, from wrongdoing. So we can't know for sure. It's not clearly elucidated in the text. But here's what I think is happening. I think Balaam, you know, he prays to God or God reveals this to him, says, all right, you can go. And in Balaam's mind, he's like, this is, this is a free pass. Now I'm going to make some money. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to go and curse these Israelites and get what I want. Now, God hasn't told him that. God didn't say, go and curse the Israelites. He just said, go, and I'll tell you what to do. But in his mind, it's already done. He's going to curse them. He's going to make the money. And, of course, God isn't going to allow Balaam to curse his own people. And so I think that's why God is angry, because God has no intention of cursing them, but Balaam does. So it says in the text that the angel of the Lord, who actually... It may have been a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus uh, existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout all eternity. And sometimes there's uh, cases in the Scripture where it appears like Christ uh, appears to people. And so that may be the, the angel of the Lord. But the angel of the Lord appears to, to, um, to Balaam, and it says that he became an adversary to him. Now it's interesting, the word for adversary in the text is actually the word Satan. Now, when we're talking about the word Satan, we're not talking about the person Satan. Uh, there is a person, uh, an individual who is opposed to God's plan, the adversary, the uh, accuser. And so there's a person Satan, but he's talking about the noun Satan, which means adversary. So just like Satan is an adversary to God and God's plan, when someone is following after their own way, God can sometimes uh, be their adversary, be opposed to them. And notice in the text, there's an intensification of what happens, of how this, this angel of the Lord opposes Balaam. At first, the angel is just kind of standing there in an open field with a sword drawn. And so Balaam comes up on his donkey. The donkey sees this angel of the Lord. And, of course, the donkey knows what he, that he shouldn't get anywhere close to this angel of the Lord. So he starts to veer away. Of course, Balaam beats the donkey. Why is this donkey taking me off the path? And they go around the donkey, or go around the angel of the Lord. Then it gets a little bit more intensive. They're going through a vineyard, and it's kind of this sort of narrow place. There's cement on each side, a wall on each side. Angel of the Lord is standing in the middle. This time, the donkey can get around, but in the process, the donkey uh, presses, the, presses Balaam's leg against the wall. And so he's injured. Once again, he's angry. He hits the donkey. Then it says in the text, they get to a very narrow place. And so the angel is standing before them. There's nowhere else they can go. And this time, 
the donkey just sits right down. There's nowhere else that, that the donkey can go. She sits down, and this time Balaam is even more and more angry. I can't imagine the beating that that donkey got. And uh, it says in the text something interesting happened, that God opened the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey asked Balaam, why are you hitting me? Why did you hit me these three times? And it's interesting that Balaam just, you know, it seems like a normal conversation as if this happens every day. Balaam says, well, you've made a fool out of me. If I had a sword, I would strike you down right away. And the donkey says, well, I've been your donkey since you were a child. Have I ever treated you this way? And kind of sheepishly and tentatively, Balaam has to admit, no, you've never treated me this way. And then God opens uh, the eyes of Balaam and explains to him, I'm the one who's opposing you. Why are you blaming it on this donkey who's carrying you? I'm the one who's opposing you. In fact, this donkey is the only reason that you're still alive. If it wasn't for the donkey preventing you from coming into my presence, you would be dead, and I would have let her live. So this is an interesting passage. It's interesting because a donkey talks, not something that happens every day. But there's an intense irony of what happens here. Do you see the irony? The greatest spiritual leader that Balak, the king of Moab, could muster up, the one who is supposed to have insight into the spiritual realm, the one who's supposed to wield all of this power, he's less moral and less insightful than a donkey. It's a remarkable demonstration of the utter powerlessness of the man who would quarrel against God. And I think it shows us something that we need to remember, and that this passage shows us that the bad news for those who walk in pride is that God can use a donkey. The bad news for those who think that they're something, who think that they're powerful, is that God can use a donkey in place of us. And when we think about pride, what Balaam was walking in, you know, we might think to ourselves, well, I'm not a prideful person. We think about the stereotypical prideful person, someone who goes around and boasts about their accomplishments, boasts about all the things that they've done, boasts about their attributes, and we're like, I'm not that person. But pride can kind of seep into our hearts a little bit more subtly. Pride can take the form of just being preoccupied with ourselves, sometimes even being preoccupied with our own problems. Pride can take the form of simply disobeying God's commands because when we do that, when we know what we ought to do and we don't do it, what we're ultimately saying is, God, I think that my way is better than your way. That's a statement of pride. It's kind of the fundamental sin beneath many other sins. When we go our own way, rather than following God's way, sometimes God will stand as an adversary opposing us. If you don't believe me, look at James 4, 6. What does it say? God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. And sometimes when we're walking in pride, God's going to stand in our way. Sometimes it's kind of subtle. And you kind of see this intensification like it did with Balaam. Sometimes we're walking our own, down, our, down our own path, living in pride, and God will just kind of stand in front of us. And we'll just walk around him, not even noticing he's there. Then maybe, you know, it gets a little bit clearer. You know, he'll walk around, walk, he'll be in front of us, and then it'll be a little bit more difficult to get around. It's like Balaam where his foot was squished against the wall. 
And we'll come out of it limping, but we're still going. We're still going on the path. And then sometimes it's like God stands right in front of us and is like, stop. Stop what you're doing. Turn around. And sometimes he uses things even like a donkey to speak to us, to pull us out of that slumber. See, when we walk in pride, we cannot win. We will fall. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so this passage provides us with a reminder when we walk in pride, our way will not prosper. And when we walk in pride, God can use someone or something else to accomplish his purposes. Famous evangelist D.L. Moody once said this, when a man thinks he has got a good deal of strength and is self-confident, you may look for his downfall. It may be years before it comes to light, but it has already commenced. And I've seen this play out in my own life, even among Christian leaders who walk in pride and experience that downfall. And so that's the bad news for the proud is God can use a donkey. God doesn't need us. He's not impressed with our accomplishments. He's not impressed by our morality. He can use someone else. But there's also good news in that. There's good news for the humble that God can use a donkey. For any of us who've ever wondered if we measure up, if any of us who felt broken and unworthy, any of us who felt poor in spirit, anyone who felt like we didn't have the knowledge that God was looking for, that we didn't have the past that God was looking for, if we ever felt like God couldn't use us, that we didn't measure up, if God could use a donkey, he can use each and every one of us. It's not about our strength. It's about his strength. God doesn't usually choose to use the strong of this world. He chooses to use the weak. And through our weakness, he demonstrates himself strong. And so that's good news of, uh, good news of hope for us who felt like, feel like we don't measure up. Famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, was once asked why he was used by the Lord so greatly in China. And his response was this. He, says, he said, God had looked for a man weak enough, and he found me. God had looked for a man weak enough, and he found me. God works through the weak. I think as believers in Christ, I think we can kind of vacillate between these two poles. We can vacillate between like, we feel like we can go our own way. We kind of start to live our lives without Christ. We start to walk in pride. And then on the other hand, sometimes maybe we feel like we're unworthy. We feel like God can't use us. And sometimes our pride and our sin can make us feel like we're unworthy. And so these two kind of poles can kind of converge even in the same person. We'll, we'll, sometimes we'll feel prideful. Sometimes we'll feel unworthy. And sometimes one causes the other. And I think the answer to both of these mindsets, to self-sufficiency and self-despondency, is the gospel. The gospel is the antidote to self-sufficiency and the antidote to self-despondency. So years ago, uh, it was just before Stephanie and I got married, I think, or right after we got married, and uh, my wife Stephanie's car died, and we took it to the mechanic, and uh, it was going to be a very high bill to get it fixed. And it was kind of on its last legs anyways, and so we didn't really want to put a lot of money into it, and so we're thinking, like, what are we going to do now? Didn't have a lot of savings, didn't really have a good plan, uh, wasn't 
the time to buy a new car. We're just starting out our new life. I think we were in the process of purchasing a, a house, you know, starting out our life together. So we weren't sure exactly what we were going to do. And uh, then we experienced a blessing not many other people experienced. Someone decided they were going to buy us a car. That's right. It wasn't our parents, in case you were wondering, it was somebody else. They decided, no strings attached, we're going to buy you a car. It was an incredible blessing to us right at the moment when we needed it. But I remember receiving that gift, and there was two things I felt. The first thing I felt was I felt guilty. And I felt guilty because I thought to myself, what did I do to deserve this? Like, what did I do to this person that they would buy me a car? And, And secondly, what could I do to ever repay this person? I mean, you don't get a car every day. It's a big expense, big cost. But the second thing I felt was, wow, this person must really love us. This person must really care about us. Such is the response to a great gift, and I think that should be our response to the gospel. In the gospel, we see the depth of our sin. Wow, look at the price that Christ paid for my sin. Look at the pain and suffering that it caused him. And it should cause us to have a healthy estimation of who we are. But it also should cause us to realize the unfailing, unstoppable love of God. That God loved us so much that he would pay that punishment for us so that we could have life. And so when we look to the cross, it centers us, it shows us that yes, we're broken, but we're also loved. Tim Keller puts it this way. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Famed pastor Harry Ironside once said this, he says, God is looking for broken men who have judged themselves in the light of the cross of Christ. When he wants anything done, he takes up men who have come to the end of themselves whose confidence is not in themselves, but in God. The gospel is the antidote for self-sufficiency and self-despondency. We're broken, but loved. Sinful, but God can use us. I'd like to tell you a story about a different donkey. Not the donkey in this passage, but the donkey who carried Jesus into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. It was the day after that great event, and that donkey was still you know, delighting in that exciting day, the most exciting day of his life. Never before had he felt such a rush of pleasure and pride. He walked into the town and found a group of people by the well, and he thought to himself, I'll show myself to them. He walked up to them, but they didn't notice him. They went on drawing their water and paid him no mind. He said to them, throw your garments down. Don't you know who I am? They just looked at him in amazement. Someone slapped him across the tail and ordered him to move. Miserable heathens, he muttered to himself. I'll just go to the market where the good people are. They will remember me. But the same thing happened. No one paid attention to the donkey as he strutted down the main street in front of the marketplace. The palm branches, he thought to himself. Where are the palm branches? Yesterday, he said, you threw palm branches. Hurt and confused, the donkey returned home to his mother. Foolish child, she said gently. 
don't you realize that without him, you're just an ordinary donkey? Without Christ, we're just ordinary people. Without Christ, we're sinners headed for an eternity separated from God. Without Christ, we're like Balaam who can't even discern the basic spiritual realities. We're like a donkey who has no power to do anything of eternal significance. But in Christ, we're both broken and loved. Flawed, but able to be used by God for anything he might call us to. Let us delight in the cross. Let us delight in the gospel. May we look to Christ and realize the depth of our brokenness, but also the indescribable love that God has for us. Because the gospel is the antidote for self-sufficiency, for pride, but also for self-despondency. Because we see that we're loved, even though we're broken. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. We thank you that even though we've gone astray, even though we're broken, even though we've walked in pride and sinfulness in our hearts, that you loved us enough to send your son to die on the cross for us so that we might experience life. Lord, I pray for any of us here who maybe have been walking apart from you, Maybe we know that you're opposing our way, but we just keep going anyways. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that we repent and turn towards you. Lord, for anyone here who's felt unworthy, feels like they're too far from your grace, who feels like they've messed up too many times to be used for you. Lord, I pray that they would have hope and encouragement in the gospel and in this passage we looked at today that God can use each and every one of us, no matter how far we've fallen from your grace. Lord, help us to live in your gospel, to delight in your cross as we live our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen.